Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Michael Lusgarten, PhD. Dr. Lusgarten is Scientist 2 in the Nutrition, Exercise, Physiology, and Sarcopenia Laboratory at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. His research currently focuses on the role of the gut microbiome and serum metabolome on muscle mass and function in older adults. He has contributed to 22 published articles in leading peer-reviewed journals that have been cited thousands of times. He is also the author of a book called Microbial Burden, a Major Cause of Aging and Age-Related Disease. Michael, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I, because I just read your book um, that is on Amazon on Kindle. And then, of course, I've actually been trying to follow you a little bit uh, on Twitter and just seeing the things that you're sharing on your Twitter profile there, too. And I've had a previous guest, Amy Perel, which we um, we both know her, and um, we talked about the microbiome and how viruses and funguses and bacteria influence our health. And yeah, you wrote and you're studying how these things also influence our aging. And you're then doing some very interesting self-personalization testing too, which we're going to get into the episode for today. So if you wouldn't mind just um, introducing listeners, what, how do, or how does the microbiome uh, affect the four leading theories of aging? And what are those um, theories? So uh, when you say, well, it's actually four of, there are, uh, there's something known as the hallmarks of aging. So what I went over in the book were just a few of them, uh, but them being uh, telomere shortening, oxidative stress, uh, inflammation, and uh, what else What else did I put on that list? Uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, maybe. Yeah, and insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, right. So um, there's actually a lot more than that, like pro protein homeostasis, DNA damage. Uh, and actually in the next iteration of the book, I intend on showing all the data that shows a role for microbial burden as underlying all of the hallmarks of aging. So, um, uh, so where should so I guess to 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 get into that how microbial burden affects those things, uh, we should take a step back into what happens in the gut. Just as an example, because uh, these changes during age uh, or the passage of time is. Uh, the, the, actually, the definition of age, I think, can be blurred once you start thinking about it in this microbial context, but beyond that. So uh, in the gut, the, the gut is basically a tube, and it's lined by epithelial cells. So the uh, integrity of the epithelial cells to not allow stuff to enter them and enter the bloodstream uh, gets worse with age. So gut barrier function gets worse with age. Uh, as a result, stuff that's inside the, the intestinal tube gets into the blood, and then... Uh, some of these things are microbial products, some are dietary antigens, things that can cause inflammation. But nonetheless, uh, micro, some microbial products, as, as I talk a lot in the book about, one of them being uh, lipopolysaccharide, which is found in the outer, basically the outer shell of uh, one specific type of bacteria, gram-negative bacteria, that's how they stain. Um, so uh, lipopolysaccharide is pretty well studied, even though, uh, as I'm sure Amy may have, or I don't know, maybe she didn't, but there's gram-negative bacteria, there's gram-positive bacteria, and then you've got fungi, viruses, all kinds of microbial stuff that can activate our immune system. But lipopolysaccharide is just one that's been uh, thoroughly studied. So when lipopolysaccharide is increased in the blood, that actually causes an insulin resistance. It actually uh, stimulates the mitochondria to uh, increase 
superoxide production to increase uh, oxidative stress. And these are two of the leading causes of aging. Um, uh, LPS uh, binds to receptors on cells that trigger inflammation. So we've got three, three major, you know, uh, uh, and, and uh, um, I think with it, as I discussed in the book, I think with an increase in uh, viral load, there's, there's an acceleration of telomere shortening. So that's the, just the, the, the quick, quick and dirty on uh, microbial burden affecting just those four uh, mechanisms of aging. Now, what's interesting is that um, high caloric diets, and I'm not going to say high fat diets because even though that's how it's been used, I don't want to uh, talk negatively about the, the macronutrient composition because I think it's more of a focus on uh, uh, high fat diets lead to uh, overeating and uh, at least in rodents and uh, an increase in caloric intake, which is part of the problem here. So uh, a high caloric diet, at least in rodents, stimulates this breakdown of the gut barrier, thereby leading to an increase in the uh, microbial products in the blood, triggering these things that negatively affect us and accelerate aging. So, um, so that indicates a role for diet in this process, independ independent of aging. So basically you can accelerate aging, which is basically what obesity is. It's an accelerated aging phenotype. So, um, yeah, that's the quick and dirty of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'll give you a loaded question. That was a big one uh, to begin uh, with. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, but I think already, um, what I'm hearing here is how the health of our gut lining can help determine how well we age. Yeah, definitely. And, and as I write in the book, one, well, one strategy, one major strategy would be a very high fiber diet uh, because the our intestinal bacteria, 99% uh, of our gut microbiome is bacteria. So you want to feed them uh, you know, what they like. And uh, at least evolutionarily, there's data showing that uh, our diet contained about 3.3 grams of fiber per 100 calories. So if you do the math on a 2,000 calorie diet, that's 66 grams of fiber, whereas the RDA is rec it's recommended you know, 20 or 30 grams. So it's paltry compared to how we evolved. So even if you just go by uh, um, uh, you know, the evolutionary dietary fiber density, um, that should, uh, our intestinal bacteria will degrade the fiber into short chain fatty acids, one of, one of which is butyrate. Butyrate is actually involved in mechanisms that improve gut barrier function. So, um, yeah, I propose that as a major strategy uh, in the book for uh, in improving uh, health and potentially lifespan. And that also then leads into what, one section where you were talking about protein intake, weren't you, in the book, and saying that higher protein intake may be associated with lower gut barrier function? Yeah, so that's a little more complicated now. Uh, and since I've written the book, I've reconsidered that. Uh, I, still, I still think that very high protein intakes, I'm not talking about 100 to 150 grams, but maybe uh, you know, 200. I don't have an exact number, but the fact is in rodents, protein restriction extends lifespan. And one mechanism that probably does that, as I note in the book, is that um, uh, is by improving barrier function. So, but there's a flip, there's a flip side on that. So, um, yeah, protein, if you don't have enough protein, you're not going to have enough muscle mass. So muscle mass is possibly associated with lifespan. And then there are specific amino acids that actually improve gut barrier function, one of them being glutamine. So this goes to the, uh, to back to the effect of the, you know, the quantified self and how would you know if your protein intake is high, too high or too low. And what's interesting is that um, even with normal kidney function, 
how much urea you've got circulating in your blood. It's a metabolite known as blood urea nitrogen in standard blood test. Um, is linearly proportional to how much protein you eat, assuming normal kidney function. If you have kidney disease, all bets are off because your urea uh, circulating levels of urea will be higher than normal. But uh, the reason why this is important, because if you're eating a, a ton of protein uh, and you're making more urea, and if you're not uh, you're, you know, peeing it out, urea actually degrades gut barrier function. High levels of urea, well, actually, it does two things. One, it stimulates the growth of urea-degrading bacteria. And actually, that enzyme, in the presence of urea in the intestine, degrades uh, intestinal barrier function. So I can see how a very high-protein diet can negatively affect lifespan through the gut. But alternatively, a very low protein diet, we're not, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm pro rodent studies. It's, these are important models for studying aging, but these, you know, methionine restriction or protein restriction diets are done on mice in a cage who are sedentary for their entire lifespan. They're basically, it's basically a jailhouse diet. You're stuck in a cage forever. You're given a standard diet, can't exercise, you can't move. So in that case, it's it, obviously it may have some benefit, but this is not the majority of us in the population. So, you know, as I mentioned, too low of a protein diet too, whereas it may extend lifespan in these caged animals, um, it, it can negatively affect the immune system. We're not going to produce enough uh, lymphocytes, which obviously are important in immune defense. So finding that window of not too low, not too high, which goes in back into the effect of using blood testing, which I do to make sure that your, uh, your blood urea nitrogens are not higher than where they should be uh, in, within a nice little range, not the reference range, but what's actually been shown to be optimal in terms of uh, mortality risk. Uh, and the reference range is not always indicative of that. So um, so could you just explain to people then, because I'm going to ask a couple other questions related to the fiber and the protein, because I know listeners, I've got a lot of listeners who um, like to follow a carnivore kind of diet, like, and that's you know a, a heavy meat-based diet. And, yep. um, and I know they're going to be going, Gary, please ask Michael this. Please ask Michael that. Um, but I also want to tie this into what you just brought up there, where you're using blood tests to try to determine your ideal um, point. So yep. could you just explain then if someone wanted to do blood tests themselves or um, if they just listen to how you're doing it and how you're determining using that? Sure. So uh, the, for protein intake, the, uh, it's going to sound very reductionist, but I, right from the start, I, I want to preface it by saying, uh, whether you're on a carnivore diet or a vegetarian, vegan, omnivore, whatever it may be, or flexitarian, uh, I advocate looking at the broad range of blood test markers. So if you're just looking at your ketones, triglycerides, insulin, glucose, lipid profile, you're shortchanging the kidney function, liver function, immune, immune function. I'm looking for the whole context. So if, if my protein intake, intake is X, and my blood urea nitrogen, knowing that urea production is, is linear, linearly uh, correlated with protein intake. If I'm only looking at my blood urea nitrogen, but all my other biomarkers are out of whack, well, uh, I've got a problem, right? So when I say that I use my protein intake and I look at, uh, to look at my blood urea nitrogen, that's also evaluated in the context of all the other biomarkers being where I, where I want them to be. So I don't want, I don't want anybody listening to think, uh, all right, I looked at my blood urea nitrogen, it's good, but all right, what does your other stuff say? Because if your other stuff is out of whack, then you should probably add some stuff into your diet or take some stuff out. So yeah, so blood urine nitrogen is a simple blood test. It's found on the standard blood chemistry screen, which is a $35 test. I don't go to my 
GP to get it done because uh, from there, four, five, or six times a year, they're going to say, I'm not doing this test for you. Insurance is going to cover it. And then I'll get charged two, three, four hundred dollars out of pocket, which is ridiculous. So I go online, they send me the blood test, I, and then I send my blood back to them and they send me the results in two days. So for blood urea nitrogen, the reference range is uh, five to 20 milligrams per deciliter. But then again, it's not, it's not about the reference range, it's what's been shown to be optimal in terms of. Uh, risk of death from all causes. And actually, how does it change during age? So uh, blood urine nitrogen goes up during age. Uh, so that's one thing to track. I mean, uh, if your protein intake is, is at one level and you see your urea levels going up over time, well, your kidney function is getting worse. But assuming, again, going back to say that assuming your kidney function is normal, and if you're increasing your protein intake uh, to whatever value, you want your protein, uh, well, I'd the data suggests that uh, blood urine nitrogen between 5 to 15 is optimal based on the all-cause mortality data. So higher than 15, there's actually a higher risk of death from all causes. So, um, so that's where I try to keep it. Actually, my blood urine nitrogen is about 10 to 11. And I had it once upon a time, I went vegan, and that wasn't optimal for some of my blood test stuff. So I increased my protein intake. And actually, what's interesting is uh, homocysteine, which is a marker of uh, cardiovascular health. It's also related to stroke and dementia risk. Um, uh, my homocysteine levels are higher than they should be. Uh, optimals between five to nine. Mine were at like 11, 12, and as high as 15. Um, so, you know, I tried the stuff that's published in the literature without going into too much detail. And then because I track my diet every day, I weigh all my food. Um, and then because I've got like 15 to 20 blood tests over a three-year span, I can look at my average dietary intake with my blood test variables and the correlations between my diet with the blood test stuff. And what I found was my protein intake was actually uh, most strongly correlated with my homocysteine levels. So, you know, within that five to 15 range for the blood urea nitrogen as a marker of protein intake, you know, I was at five. So I said, well, let me, let me increase it because I've got some window, you know, window there. Let me increase it. So I did. And actually my homocysteine went down. So that correlation may have been a causative thing, however, whatever the mechanism. So right now my blood urea nitrogen is between 10 and 11, 10 and 13. So I'm still within that five to 15 uh, milligrams per deciliter range. Um, but I also keep an eye on my kidney function and all the other stuff too, to make sure that, you know, I don't fix one thing and mess up 10 other things. And then also how I introduced you that you're working with sarcopenia, you know, and I've had, um, Dr. Stuart Phillips on, and he, you know, he's an, a big advocate that we actually need more protein as we age too, to be able to avoid things like sarcopenia. So, and as you said, you know, as we age, typically our kidney function degrades naturally anyway. So we're in the situation where we need more protein but our kidney function is also going down. So how are you handling that knowing what you know about sarcopenia? Are you, try, are, are you making sure that you get enough protein to avoid sarcopenia, but then also improve your aging? Yeah, definitely. So what's interesting is uh, I just submitted a grant two days ago that looks at the kidney-gut-muscle axis. And that, that story involves decrease, decrease in kidney function, alterations in the gut microbiome, and increased fat in muscle. So there, with age, there's more fat in muscle. Your muscle composition gets worse. So, um, so yeah, I'm keeping an eye on my kidney function stuff, which is all normal or, or uh, you know, close to where it should be for biologic youth. Um, but, uh, but what's interesting about that protein story too, is going back to the idea of too much. So with a very high protein intake, and again, that's going to be variable, you know, uh, for, for me, I don't know, maybe 200, 250 grams for someone else. Maybe it's 150 grams. It's variable. Uh, the more protein you eat, more of it will slip 
from not getting absorbed in the small intestine and get into the large intestine where it can then be fermented by gut bacteria. And the gut bacteria, colonic bacteria, they will, the uh, composition of your colon, colonic bacteria will depend on your environment, meaning diet, exercise, you know, air quality, everything. Whether you have a viral infection in your nose, that can affect it too. So um, if your protein intake is very high, you can increase the, comp the composition of protein-degrading bacteria, which can produce some of these things that actually worsen kidney function. So um, for those who are interested in looking at how their protein intake is affecting their physiology, I think it, you know, it's important to look at your, your gut microbiome. Fortunately, I haven't seen any of those, uh, an increase in protein-degrading bacteria uh, in my intestines, so, uh, so we're good there. But those protein-degrading bacteria also increase with age. Probably one reason that older adults may need more protein, right? Because if you're eating more protein and you're 75 years old and, and you know, less of it's getting absorbed in the small intestine, some of it's getting into the large intestine, and now you've got more of these E. coli or other protein degraders, uh, that's not good. So, um, so yeah. Okay. Yeah, because um, I'll come back to some of those questions then that I know people want to be asking me in the um, – if we – I'm just thinking here, if we probably stay with the protein one and talking about the microbiome of your guts and gut lining, you know, I've had guests on the show who appear to have very bad intestinal permeability issues, uh, which is causing autoimmune responses and a whole cascade of conditions. And when they adopt a mainly a meat-based diet, then it seems to solve a lot of those problems. So in this case, and I've had another uh, lady who um, they run a clinic in Hungary called paleo medicina and they focus a lot on you're just eating fats and protein to try and improve intestinal permeability so it's interesting to hear that on one hand we're, we're looking in the research that says that protein can cause intestinal permeability issues but then we're, we're hearing case studies of people adopting just more fat and meat to improve intestinal permeability so I don't want to say that the autoimmune, uh, like, you know, for uh, example, uh, Jordan Peterson's daughter, I know that she, and actually Jordan Peterson, right? They went all me. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I'm not trying to say that my way is how everyone should do it. You know, I do my own testing. I'm trying to find what's optimal for me. Um, but uh, maybe as a TMI and too much information, I, I grew up on a terrible diet, eating like boxes of cakes and boxes of cookies. And that's what I would eat in that day. And my you know, I don't want to blame my parents, but they, they're the ones who bought it. So, um, but then eventually in my early twenties, I adopted that way. And it was like, what do I need to eat vegetables or fiber? What, I'll eat just uh, crushed protein bars, whatever. So that led to hemorrhoids and, uh, bloody hemorrhoids. So, um, and that's intestinal inflammation. So it, maybe it's TMI. And if people don't like to hear about hemorrhoids, you know, they can tune off now for, you know, come back in a couple, a couple of minutes, but I can say that um, I've gone vegan. I've gone on a super high fiber diet, like 130 grams a day. Uh, I still average about 100 grams a day, but I noticed that, um, you know, including about 300 grams, uh, 300 calories from chickpeas, which you know, all the long lived societies eat beans. So, uh, you know, it's one thing to use the epi data, but what does the epi data say in your own physiology? So, what, since I've flipped that out for uh, you know five to seven ounces of grass fed uh, beef thereby lowering my fiber intake for the day. Still, I'm at like 80 to 100 grams. I'm not, I'm still way above the RDA. That issue with hemorrhoids has dramatically subsided. So, um, and, and usually the therapy for once you've got a hemorrhoid is you've got to band it off. I'm not trying to get, you know, uh, have scars in my intestines. So um, I can see a role, 
it's an individual based thing. You know, uh, I'm not a fan of people who go vegan and say, Oh, I feel great. Well, what do your blood markers say? And I'm not alternatively someone who goes carnivore and says, Oh, I feel great. What are the, what are your blood test values? What, what does the data actually say? And I've seen some of, um, Michaela Peterson's blood test stuff, which, which looked pretty good. I mean, I think she had a couple things that were out of whack, but they, these are easily fixable things. I didn't see anything blatantly obvious, which you would expect from eliminating all the other food groups. But, uh, but yeah, they may have some genetic issue that, uh, um, that's, you know, optimal for them. So, yeah. And again, you know, um, I, I know I'm just asking these questions because listeners are going to want me to ask this stuff, yeah. but I'm also very pro like N equals one. Like you, like, as you were saying, you know, use your, your own, body use your own physiology subjective objective and just say this is what makes me feel best um and that's what you're finding in your case there so yeah. um but also the data the data to back it up mm-hmm. and not just like oh these are my ketones or triglycerides or triglyceride the hdl ratio which i actually see a lot of uh pro you know meat you know uh, eat only meat you know uh carnivore only diets i see them focusing on uh you know just a few biomarkers of, uh, of uh, cardiovascular burden or cardiovascular health. And it's, it's the full picture. You know, it's full of the picture you can, as you can get. Because it's one thing to feel good, but then it's another thing to say, all right, here are my biomarkers. And, uh, and that's why this works best for me. I, I bet that pure carnivore isn't going to be optimal for most people. You know, eat, including a little bit of vegetables that they can tolerate will be optimal, whether it's gut barrier function or uh, you know, other stuff. But uh, yeah, most people don't measure their systemic inflammation, which is important. So, uh, so we touched on a little bit earlier as one of the theories of aging was insulin resistance. So I'd be interested with your own personal quantified self-tracking. Are you tracking insulin resistance or your glucose, your ketones or something in that respect too, to make sure that um, you're in a more optimal place? Yeah, 100%. So I, I haven't tracked insulin levels, but I have, uh, like I said, glucose levels, you know, going back for 20 years. And uh, as I mentioned too, like I, I you know, with, besides one, te- one blood test a year, which at best most people would do, I want, I really wanted to get a systemic understanding of where my body was. So I did it like 15 times in a three year span. So yeah, my blood glucose levels, uh, are pretty consistent. I think my average is, uh, 85 over those 15 or so blood test measurements. So, but then that being said, you know, you could have normal blood glucose and your insulin levels have been going up during time. So I'm considering, you know, including insulin into my list, but yeah, ins- I'd say insulin resistance is probably one of the major uh, markers of poor aging. If you're insulin resistant, you're on a bad track and you get off that quickly, um, especially since you can tie it back to microbial burden. Um, so, but yeah, I'm on top of that. My glucose levels, good. Okay. But then, but then again, it may, it's, not, it's not just related to my diet, though. I try, you know, I, you know, I, I walk 10 to 15 plus miles a week. I strength train three days a week. I'm, I'm staying, I'm fit and active. Um, so that may play a part in it too. It may not just be diet. So, Mm -hmm. and, um, on your blog, on your website, you also do some, you've done some interesting experimentation where you've tried to adjust your gut microbiome to improve your deep sleep. I think it was, could you just tell people about that experiment? Yeah, so there is some data uh, on the gut-brain axis, and it's uh, evolving. Uh, and I, I'd be shocked if there wasn't a you know strong role for the gut influencing brain, whether it's sleep or ang- you know anxiety, depression, whatever it may be. And um, the phytobacteria are um, they're, they're, they produce short-chain fatty acids, which can be involved in gut barrier defense. 
and um, I, I postulated an important role for them in in, uh, in uh, aging. They decline with age. They're very high in infants, and they decline all the way down to almost zero. So I've had almost zero bifidobacteria in each of my four microbiome measurements. And one reason may be is the antibiotics I took as a kid. I mean, my parents had antibiotics, you know, when, when I got sick or whatever, and uh, had them on the shelf. And, uh, you know, <laughs> my dumb ass at however old I was, was like, oh, I, I don't feel great today. So I popped some antibiotics, which is mental. It's so ridiculous. I can't believe I did that in hindsight. But I, I have no bifidobacteria or had. So um, at least on Ubiome, before they got raided by the government, they had on their website um, that bifidobacteria may be involved in a sleep quality. Uh, and one measure of sleep quality is the amount of deep sleep you get. When you wake up in the morning, if you feel terrible, you may have slept eight hours, but got almost no deep sleep, which is a slow wave sleep, delta sleep. So, uh, so considering I didn't have any bifidobacteria and there was some published data linking uh, metabolites produced by bifidobacteria to sleep quality, and knowing that um, like 10 years ago, I did a, a polysomnograph, which, which is a sleep study, an official sleep study. You go to a sleep doctor and they measure your uh, you know, sleep stages. My, my deep sleep was like 5% of total sleep, which again is like an 80-year-old. When you're young, you get about 20%. So, um, so yeah, I started tracking my deep sleep with a, with a fitness uh, tracker. And um, you know, granted, the fitness trackers aren't going to be as good as the gold standard of tracking your sleep uh, in a sleep study. But uh, you know, the air should be systematic, meaning you know, uh, whatever the air is, it's gonna, it should be across the board. You know, uh, and I'm going to get relative amounts. So, so yeah, I tracked my diet. I tracked when I took the, uh, the uh, probiotic, which in this case was a bifidobacteria mix. And I've tried to, to get bifidobacteria into my gut three different times. Uh, so it's a dose thing too, that I get the right uh, probiotic, you know, that can survive my, uh, the acidity of my uh, stomach. So, um, so yeah, so tracking diet, taking the probiotic, and then tracking sleep, and then looking for correlations there, which is what I uh, published on my blog. And actually I saw... Uh, after I stopped taking the probiotic, I saw a spike that I didn't see for, you know, the, I think, I don't know, four or five months of tracking my deep sleep. Now, whether that's related to the bifidobacteria, I don't know, but my bifidobacteria went up a bunch, um, uh, even a couple of weeks after stopping the probiotic supplementation, which suggests that there may have been a role for the bifidobacteria on affecting my deep sleep. But that's still a work in progress. I'm still obsessed with getting as much deep sleep as possible. Unfortunately, my fitness tracker, they changed their algorithm. So I had 240 days of track sleep data with my diet, and now it seems like I'm getting double the amount of deep sleep I was before, but I'm getting to sleep earlier, and uh, yeah, so now I have to get another 200 days of data to see, you know, so it's still a work in progress. Whether or not the alterations in my gut microbiome did it, it's unknown, but it's still an interesting find that, you know, uh, the increase in my, in, in my bifidobacteria went up correspondingly with my uh, increasing deep sleep at least during that time mm -hmm. so yeah now i'm bringing up sleep too and microbial because i've had um dr ben bickman on and we've he he's talked about insulin resistance and you know he was mentioning how like if you don't sleep well also that can contribute to insulin resistance and so this this is all tying in that if how we mentioned if you have insulin resistance it's you know with a microbial uh and it's an age-related thing and so we need to try and get optimal sleep as we age too but you know, my question always when I think of this, um, and I know others have asked is, so when you see a probiotic at, at, on the shelf in a health store, like 
how much of that can I actually use in my body? As you said, because a lot of it gets destroyed when it first hits your stomach lining. So um, even in this case, are you a fan of certain ones like live uh, or, you know, the ones you find in the fridge, liquids, powders, any any sort of guidance on anyone if they wanted to try and experiment themselves? Yeah. Step one is get your gut microbiome analyzed. That's That's got to be step one because if you're just going to take a probiotic cocktail, whether it's lactobacillus or bifidobacteria, whatever it may be, um, without knowing what your actual composition of your gut microbiome is, because if something's got to live in there, something's got to get out. So maybe you take a probiotic and push out a, a better, you know, a better, you know, uh, uh, symbiome. So um, first step is to get your gut microbiome sequence. Second step is to figure out if there are things that you want to increase with uh, some hypothesis, right? Um, if your gut microbiome looks like what you should like and doesn't look like an 80-year-old uh, microbiome, but then granted, it's complicated, right? Because most people maybe don't look that stuff up. But I'd encourage everyone to look into these things. Because I'd say blind supplementation is just, um, may do more harm than good. So step one, get the microbiome sequence. Step two, figure out if there are bacterial uh, species, assuming it's bacteria that you would want to change there, uh, that you want to increase. Step three, actually get your microbiome sequence again to see if they're there. Most people don't do any of these things. They take it, they say, oh, I feel great, but it could be a sugar pill placebo. You don't know until you've actually got the data. Uh, and then step four, track some outcome measure that shows that taking the uh, probiotic is actually doing anything. For you. But you're exactly right in terms of you know whether it's in liquid form or you know the dose of it may be uh, too low to get in there. Um, it's a trial and error process. Um, now, I, unfortunately, I'd say most people don't try uh, enough to to positively alter it with probiotics. I'd actually I'd actually put probiotics down lowest on the list. Unless you had some, you know, uh, extreme situation, I, I'd say changing your diet probably is step one. Assuming that most people have a normal composition that can that you can change the levels through diet with. Um, but in my case, I didn't have; I had almost zero bifidobacteria, so I could have, you know, so prebiotics are feeding. Prebiotics are, are, are defined as foods or food items that feed certain species or strains of bacteria. They're enabling them to flourish. But if you don't have those species of strains in your gut, they can't grow. I mean, they don't, it doesn't, so you need the seed. So I had the seed, which was the bifidobacteria. And then after, you know, X amount of days, whether it was um, three weeks or uh, 30 days or whatever it was, I was like, I'm going to stop taking the seed. The seed should be there. I'm just going to give them the prebiotic that they like. So um, probiotics shouldn't be indefinitely. Uh, if you're taking them indefinitely, indefinitely and they're not seeding your gut, you're, you're not giving them the prebiotic that they need. So uh, there's a lot of factors there that that you know people should really uh, dig into if they want to seed their gut properly. But first step would be foods, I'd say, finding out which foods. Actually, first step would be finding out what your composition is and how you want to positively or negatively change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and when, yeah, and when you talk, sorry, so, yeah, yeah, real quick, even especially if you're on a meat-heavy diet, you want to see if you've got an increase in the protein-degrading bacteria. And, and for an example. The, uh, uh, there, it's very simple and straightforward. It's proteobacteria, but not all proteobacteria are created equal. Within the proteobacteria are a family called enterobacteria. These are the urea degraders. They're bad guys, bad guys, you know, quote unquote. If you've got too many, if your meat intake is too high and you've got a ton of enterobacteria, you may want to consider cutting down on the meat. Okay. And yeah, when you're talking there about the seeding, 
element too. You know, I think of seeding either through your mouth, and of course, there's now the the new age of fecal transplants as another source of feeding. And I guess people are then considering what what is the more if you do want to alter your your ratios, it, what's going to actually be able to do that? And it seems like I don't know. Maybe fecal transplants are going to be more powerful than taking a probiotic if you're at that stage. I don't, I mean, is even someone like yourself who's into quantified tracking, have you ever even considered something as crazy as trying to go for a fecal transplant to increase a ratio? Oh, yeah. I've considered it, but I, I, I haven't done it. But what's interesting is um, uh, there's a scientist, Laura Peterson. Um, she published a paper on the microbiome in cyclists. And uh, if you Google her name, her story should come up where she actually got a, a fecal, fecal transplant. I guess she had some massive GI issues and I don't remember if she took antibiotics or however she did it, but yeah, she, she talks about how she did an uh, FMT fecal uh, microbiota transplant. And she says that it improved her health, like her gut issues went away. But it, the issue that I have with that, I mean, may, it, maybe for some, in some situations it would be beneficial, like as it's used now, it's used for people who have Clostridium difficile uh, infections, which is a nasty infection. Um, it could cause death. So it's, it's, it's a life-saving transplant. But um, you see, the composition of your microbiome is going to be dependent on your, what metabolites your cells are making in your intestine. So on the one hand, if I can see in the short term where, let's say that you wipe out your microbiome temporarily completely with antibiotics, just wipe it out, so that, and then you do the transplant. So someone else's microbiome should colonize your GI tract for some small amount of time in the exact composition that came from the donor. But then that microbiome is going to adapt over time based on your genetics and based on the metabolites that you produce, and based on your environment that you're exposing it to, whether it's diet, whether it's exercise, air quality, as I mentioned, all those factors. So without actually trying to address some of the underlying root of why you would want to get a fecal transplant, in the case of people who have C. difficile infections, um, it's a, it's a life or death kind of thing. But if you're just trying to do it, so they, if they don't get it, they can die, right? But if it's for someone who just is interested in optimizing their health, um, they may want to address the underlying issues first. Um, because that, just as an, a quick aside, um, so uh, what I didn't mention is that I, I've got a paper in review where uh, we transplanted fecal samples from older adult humans into germ-free mice. And that model is... Uh, has established a causative role for the microbiome on, on things like obesity, on kwashiorkor, uh, immunosenescence, a whole bunch of uh, outcomes. So, but these have been done in young animals, basically transplanted from young to young. So, um, so we did it from old humans into young germ-free mice, and um, we actually saw a difference in grip strength in the mice, which would suggest a role for the microbiome on muscle strength as a causative role. But uh, some of the microbiome didn't transplant and may have changed over time. And the reason I bring that up is because in the only other study I know of that did an old transplant into young, it was from mouse to mouse. They saw that one week after the transplant, it looked like an old donor in the young animal. But after a month of having the old, the old stool, it was just like young, a young microbiome. So an animal that didn't have a microbiome got a stool sample a transplant from an old animal. One week it looked the same as an old animal. After a month, it adapted to where it was like from young end. So I predict that young people or young healthy people getting these transplants, um, that's probably what would happen. It would just adapt over time. So if you don't change your diet or your lifestyle, you haven't addressed the underlying issue in your 
biome would change back to where it was. That's what I'd predict. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I don't know if this is even talked about in the longevity anti-aging conferences where you've got people trying to do fecal transplants for longevity reasons. And this would be some, I guess that's a valid point. If you're younger or below a certain age and don't exhibit certain things, then you probably will gain no benefit from doing that. If it, that, that level of trying to stay young, uh, it's maybe only beneficial for certain people at a certain age. Yeah, in a, in a certain condition, yeah. What, so unfortunately, we live in a big pharma-based world and in a drug mentality for improving health and longevity, whether it's senolytics or other stuff. And uh, what we do know, though, is uh, a good diet, staying lean and exercise, staying fit, probably would give you 15 to 20 years of increased lifespan above the average lifespan, whether to get you to the maximum lifespan, 122, that. You don't see marathon runners or bodybuilders getting that far, but to get from 75 uh, or 80 for a man and a woman, uh, respectively, to get to 90, 95, based on at least the rodent data and based on data and Olympic athletes who live longer, it's pretty, pretty known. So I'll take that trade-off versus taking a pill or a fecal transplant or, you know, this reductionist view. Um, you know, will you get six months more life? I don't know. Will it shorten my life by six, by six months? So, you know, most people don't want to go through the diet and exercise path again. 15 to 20 years, I, I'd put that first. Mm -hmm. So, but eventually, eventually, uh, because I have no interest in death, uh, I can't stand that idea or functional decline. We're going to need some cellular rejuvenation to, to fix our old, you know, uh, aging, aging cells. So proper diet and lifestyle can only get you so far, but using the drug based approach or probiotic based approach that can only get so far too with severe limitations, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And what you were talking about, uh, where you transplanted from an old donor to young donor, and then eventually the young also overpowers the old donors' um, microbes. In, in my study, we did. Sorry to cut real quick. In my study, we don't know if that happened because we only measured at one time point. But in the uh, old into young mouse, mouse into mouse, they they saw that. Yeah, they 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 saw that uh, over a one month period with two time points. Yeah, they saw that. Sorry. Yeah. No, but because what I also think about is because a lot of the time when still I'm, I'm in the habit of doing that when I think of the microbiome I just think of bacteria but it's not just bacteria it's viruses and funguses and um, there was another word that Amy used in our interview Ar archaea yeah <laughs> and yep. and so uh, but and at one point that she did bring up too was that how viruses infiltrate the bacteria too in our system so in, in that case if you take an antibiotic, you may get rid of the bacteria, but you don't deal with the viruses and you don't deal with the fungus. So yep. the host store has those elements to their microbiome, even though you're trying to only influence the bacteria side of the microbiome. Which would go into the idea that transplant the whole biome, you would get around those effects. But then, as I mentioned, if, you're, if your genotype is, whatever your genotype is for having a certain microbiome, now you've temporarily change the biome with someone else's biome, but your genotype to have a certain biome is still there. You know, your genes are going to make certain proteins and your cells are going to make certain metabolites and that's going to be the fuel to grow a certain metabolism. So temporarily you may change that with someone else's microbiome, but over time I predict it will go back to the same, you know, as it was before, unless you change the, the input variables, whether it's diet or exercise, things that are known to positively affect the microbiome. But, but it, 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 to that point too, that it isn't just you know, we have these individual species of different microbes, whether bacteria, fungi, fungi virus, archaea, whatever. They, they interact with each other and coexist with each other. So it's, I mean, it's basically like a neural net. You know, this bacteria is going here. They're, you know, the metabolites they're doing, they're making are the growth for a lot of other microbes. So 
right now we're just in the infancy. First, it started with uh, you know uh, whole scale whole scale sequencing of the bacteria that are down there, and then it's evolved into what are the viruses that are there and what are the fungi that are there. But this these interrelationships of the entire microbiome, whether it's in the gut or skin, or we're still unfortunately in the infancy of it. Uh, and eventually, I mean, it, I think it's been estimated that there are enough microbes down there to be in similar in size to the human brain. So I'm sure that there are neural nets how they interact in terms of how they interact. So we're going to need that kind of uh, you know computing uh, power to learn about the interactions, learn about how a particular thing, whether it's a probiotic or diet or exercise affects the entire community, the entire ecosystem. And then after evaluating that intervention, does that positively or negatively affect the complete ecosystem of your microbiome? That's where I see this going. How fast do we get there? That's another story. But uh, right now we're still just barbarically doing it. Take these probiotics and see what happens, right? But eventually the tools will be more specific, whether that's 10, 50, or 100 years, eventually. And a point I want to also touch on that you brought up in your book was about um, our adipose tissues. So, how the amount of fat that we have as we age and how that actually has a protective mechanism for us as we age. Could you just educate people about that? Yeah, I think that's very interesting. A very interesting finding that's uh, dramatically understudied. Uh, So, and actually, I I pitched the grant to the NIA, National Institute on Aging, uh, last year that I just didn't have enough preliminary data. But it was based around this idea that uh, fat cells produce antimicrobial peptides. And that evidence comes from skin, fat cells located in the skin, under the skin, subcutaneous fat cells that when exposed to a gram-positive bacterium, in this case, Staphylococcus aureus. So, you know, when, when you see a, an athlete who has a hole literally in their, in their leg, flesh-eating bacteria, that's Staph aureus. They're nasty. So when you expose... Uh, fat cells located underneath the skin, subcutaneous fat cells, to uh, staph aureus, they actually make antimicrobial peptides, uh, one of them being cathelicidin. So in the grant that I pitched last year, I proposed that um, when considering that microbial burden is increased in older adults and that we have an increase in fat cells in our muscle with age, I pitched the idea that uh, the increase in fat cells in muscle with age may be serving an antimicrobial role. Now, we still don't know. I'm, I'm still going to go after that in future grants. But um, so then it, it goes back to this idea that uh, obese people actually have uh, higher circulating microbial burden. This has been shown in rodent studies. Um, it raises the issue, is that a compensatory mechanism to improve immune defense against microbial burden? And I'd argue that probably yes, especially when you consider that a high calorie diet weakens the gut barrier. There's an increase in circulating microbial products, which is probably overwhelmingly our immune cells, which circulate and then one response that our body can use is by increasing uh, the size and amount of fat cells. And considering the fat cells can make these antimicrobial peptides, um, they're probably helping with our immune system. So there's the, the, that idea is just emerging. There's only a few studies who have actually uh, studied this. But yeah, I pitched that idea in the book, and uh, it's based on I'd say it's based on solid footing in the rodent studies. So uh, I'd, I'd be shocked if it doesn't turn out to be uh, the truth when it comes to human beings. So I'm interested in yourself again with your mission to, you know, optimize your longevity and your aging. Um, 
how are you handling that aspect of it, knowing that potentially fat is a good thing to have as we age too? Or is it that we have to stay within a certain body fat percentage, uh, potentially that, or if we see that it goes up too high, actually that's an indicator that we've got microbial burden and that we need to deal with that to improve our adipose tissue or body fat percentage? Yeah, so that's a double-edged sword, just as you mentioned. So I'd say this first step is staying lean and making sure that your markers of inflammation are low for the duration of your lifespan. And if they start to change, whether it's your, if, like you said, if, you're, if your amount of fat goes up and you're not as lean as you were and your inflammation is going up, you probably have an increase in microbial burden. What that microbe is, whether it's bacteria, fungi, virus, whatever, uh, you've got to figure it out uh, through independent testing. But first step is staying lean. And I'd say that the increase in fat during aging, again, is the compensatory mechanism, whether it's your caloric intake is too much or you're not giving your gut the proper nutrients that you need. Um, but there is actually data in older adults showing that a higher BMI uh, is associated with a lower risk of death from all causes. But in that cohort, you know, uh, they probably weren't very lean or fit to start out with. So it's like on a, on a, a standard American diet, which isn't very good, uh, having more fat will probably give you a longer lifespan than someone who doesn't. But the flip side of that too is muscle isn't the only thing uh, that goes away during aging. Fat does too. And you know, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just my bias, but you could make the argument that when you consider that the role of inflammation has on negatively affecting muscle mass, and inflammation can cause decreases in protein synthesis, leading to decreases in muscle mass. Um, it may be that these microbes um, can also, you know, turn off stuff in our fat cells to stop making antimicrobial peptides. So now we're just on the, the, the rapidly accelerating slope to death because the muscle's gone and the fat's gone. And it's end of life. So as I said, I mean, it seems like I, I just packed a lot of information in there. First step is staying lean. If you see that your body fat is starting to go up um, and your inflammation is starting to go up, you probably should address what the ish, underlying issue is there. And if it's a high-calorie diet, that feeds back into this idea of high-calorie diets, worsen gut barrier function, probably leading to an increase in microbial burden. But, uh, and if you're, not, if you're not tracking your calorie diet and don't do anything to fix these things, I mean, I'd say that's a blind approach to health, so it's important to track these things. Um, but yeah, hopefully I unpacked some of the some of the story there. Yeah, no, you did, and I know it's a it's a complicated subject when we start going into <laughs> microbiome and and the links to all the systems. But it's a fascinating topic because we we are we're we're meant to be in a symbiotic, you know, beneficial relationship between our body and these other little guys that are traveling with us as we go through life, and we're just trying to figure out now how do we optimize that relationship across all the, our different organs. So, sure, Here, here's the drawback though. Uh, germ-free mice, animals that don't have a microbiome, bubble mice, they're grown in a bubble for the duration of lifespan, they're not immortal. So there still is cellular aging independent of the microbiome. So you could say, well, then the microbe cares about the microbiome. But the fact is, that shows that the microbiome can affect how long you live. But if you don't fix... So considering that our cells age and make different metabolites that go on during aging, our, our microbiome is going to change in relation to that composition. And even if you're doing all the right things to keep yourself healthy and fit and live long, considering that cellular aging will change independent of the microbiome, we've got to go after things that actually address that, that issue first. Um, but yeah, you can slow it down. You can slow down. Uh, you can keep your cellular function uh, closer to a youthful state, which will keep your microbiome closer to a youthful state, potentially giving you more and healthier years of life. Yeah, and it's and the key thing here is we've I've talked about it on the show with others before is about mitochondrial health, 
Um, and our, so our microbiome do can influence our mitochondrial health. Hundred percent. And this is a, a you know, uh, most people don't know much about this, and I think this is. So I did my graduate work on mitochondria. So uh, I, I started off thinking they were the the root of aging, life, and death. And they essentially are. You don't make energy, you die, right? Mitochondria consistently making energy, for example, in the heart. Mitochondria don't work, your heart won't pump. So what's interesting about that is, as, as we mentioned in the, in the beginning, that you know, mitochondria produce superoxide, and, uh, which is toxic. It's intended to kill stuff. Um, so um, that's one way that our body can uh, address microbial burden. But what's also interesting is that um, circulating micro, uh, mitochondrial DNA increases during aging. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, oh, mitochondria function and mitochondrial health gets worse with age. So their DNA is in the cytoplasm and it's in the blood. What does that have to do with anything? So there's actually studies showing that the mitochondria eject their, some of their DNA as a signal to the immune system to target the microbes. So I just think that's amazing, you know, um, an interesting finding. So that's also on my list is to look at, you know, circulating uh, microbi uh, mitochondrial DNA as a marker of microbial burden. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that test then. You know, I, that's what I start thinking of, like, yeah, we start testing that level, you know, to see like, okay, so it's, a, it's showing our mitochondria is part of like our innate immunity is actually trying to then send a signal to the body like we need to deal with something here. Yeah, yeah, and I bet they they release their some of it's not all of their DNA. They release parts of it, but I bet they release certain parts of it in response to certain microbes, and especially when you consider the mitochondria are located in the cells. So microbes and their products don't just circulate in blood. I mean, granted, you know, macrophages, our, our immune some uh, one of our immune cells will engulf and phagocytose these microbes to kill them and get rid of them and degrade them. But there are also microbes that, once they're in the blood, can get into our cells. Now, imagine you've got a microbe in a cell, and you've got our mitochondria, and basically the mitochondria is like off, right? So, and it wants to send that signal as strongly as possible, so it releases some of its DNA, which is a dangerous signal to the cell. Now, our other cells can say, "All right, we need to kill that cell." But uh, I just think it's an amazing finding. There's, there's a, um, yeah, some, some, there are some very interesting studies going on in that, uh, in terms of that, especially um, specific fatty acids inside that the mitochondria should be using can get stolen by intracellular parasites like toxoplasma. Um, so yeah, we are at a continual, it's a continual arms race, us versus them. They're doing stuff to us, we're doing stuff to them. Unfortunately, spoiler alert, they win. You know, uh, we don't make it out alive, you know, besides 120 years that we're you know have the date but uh it's only a matter of time their days are numbered <laughs> so is. um are you doing any current experiments for longevity in this case with your microbiome i mean we talked about the deep sleep aspect is there anything up and coming or currently in uh, progress not with the microbiome um I'm, i always keep an eye on the blood test up because that's the end point um you know if, if your microbiome changes but you don't see any changes in your uh circulating biomarkers does it what does it really mean but um i bet that changes in the microbiome would lead to changes in the circulating biomarkers so i i, I had my biomar uh, my uh my microbiome done a few months ago but i, I haven't it, as i mentioned it, you would have to do it so often to get a true baseline that uh you know i've, I've 
straight away from doing it that often and looking at it more once in a while to make sure it's not dramatically changing routine with age. And in contrast, the circulating biomarkers, I'm still doing that every every few months to, to make sure that uh, my biological age is as young as it can possibly be. I don't know if you saw that post, but uh, I, I'd say that's it, you know, um, so Alex Zavarankov's group in, uh, in Silicon Medicine, they uh, developed this biological age uh, predictor based on the circulating uh, blood test results, the standard chemistry screen, which when you go to the doctor, it's just a 40 blood test, that simple, simple $35 test. So I, I'm more hot on that trail. Microbiome is always in my mind. I'm constantly studying it and writing grants about it. But uh, I'm more obsessed about the biological age and optimizing that through circulating biomarkers. So next week, I'll get my blood test done again to see if uh, hopefully I'm still on the right track. But based on that data, uh, I'm about 15 to 20 years younger than my biological age. And, and what's unfortunate is that, you know, the a biological age predictor based on, you know, uh, I think it evokes, you know, the first, the first thought I think most people have is, Oh, come on, bullshit, biological age, give me a break. Because the, the, the biological age things have, that have been reported in the past have been based on these ridiculous questionnaires and, you know, how often do you exercise and do you smoke? No, this is based on data from about 200,000 people and using uh, machine learning uh, to develop a predictor set of, uh, of circulating biomarkers that can predict a biological age. So um, so based on that, I'm as I mentioned, I'm 15 to 20 years younger than my actual age. So just trying to keep that as low as possible for as long as I can. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, we're just coming up on our time here at the moment, but um, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, I'm sure there's a treasure trove of uh, Q&A things we could still be going through here. But for any listeners that want to maybe uh, keep following you, see what you're getting up to, the kind of information that you're sharing or even potentially contact you, um, are there any particular uh, websites or social media accounts that you'd recommend for people to get um, follow you? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm Twitter, Facebook. It's uh, at Mike Lustgarden. Uh, I, my uh, academic email is on my papers. If anyone wants to look up my uh, academic papers, I've got my website, michaellustgarden.com. Uh, pretty responsive. So if anybody's got questions or uh, you know they want to direct me to studies on X, Y, or Z, have at it. Um, got to keep your eyes open to all the ideas because you never know what may be the right. You know, you not. It's good to listen to all points of view, right? So that's what I try to do, wherever they may come from. So if people want to shoot me ideas and, and questions, I'm all, I'm all for it. So. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much, Mike, for your time and sharing your personal information and also the information of what the research is saying. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Yeah.